Libraries and banks, among other institutions, used to have filing system. Some still have them. They had drawers, holders, and many tools to store the paperwork and organize it so that they could easily retrieve it through some documented process at a later stage. So that's where the name file system and the computer world emerges from. And this is one of the subject of this episode. We're going to discuss data storage on Unix with some discussion about file system and an emphasis on storage device. I'm Vinam and you're listening to the Nixers Podcast. What's data storage and what's a file system? Data storage is whatever mean that is used to store information on a medium that can contain that body of data and that offers a way to search for that information back. The data storage medium we'll focus on will be the long-term physical storage device like the hard disk or and not the virtual ones that only exist in memory or networked ones. A file system is a way to give meaning to the placement of this information instead of having it as a big blobs of ones and zeros. A file system helps by offering an interface to isolate, group, classify, delimit, to know where the information starts and ends, give pieces of information an identifier, a name, give the information different sort of attributes like access rights and metadata, etc. There are many different kinds of file systems that can be used on different types of storage devices, each one with different specificities and ways of handling information. So we've dealt with the definitions. Now let's talk about the big architecture of all the components that are involved. To better understand the architecture of the data storage, you have to think about it as a sort of two-way street which has two roles, to read or to write. Along the way the data travels that street and stops at those components that are in the middle parts of the architecture. Those components sometimes keep a log of whatever passed through them, they cache it so that they can cast away the request, pushing it back to where it came from. You can also think about it like every one of those nodes have both a read and write methods and apply those methods to one another, though it is not always as simple as that, but it gives the big pictures of the flow. Let's go through the layers quickly so that we can grasp the overall architecture. At the lowest layer we have the physical device itself, be it an HDD or SSD or DVD or SD or flash etc. Those devices have a connector that speaks a certain transfer protocol, which is usually SCSI or ATA cable. Above this we have the drivers that maps and interacts with those devices via the connectors, not only to transfer data but also to configure and read metadata from them. On some systems the driver interacts with the BIOS, basic input-output system, instead of interacting with the connector directly. However, on most Unix, this is not the case. The driver speaks directly with the connector. Above the drivers, we have an optional block layer that buffers, schedules, and queues requests that will be sent to the device. It also uses the block as a unit independently of what the real unit of the device is. For example, on a hard disk, the sector size is usually 512 bytes, while a block could be 4096 bytes. 
The next layer on top is optional and is composed of hardware abstractions such as the hardware encryption layer, disk spanning via LVM, logical volume management, or the MD driver on Linux. It could be RAID for redundancy, etc. Above this, we have other abstraction layers that consist of the VFS, the virtual file system, and the page cache that could possibly be paged out to the physical device or used to cache some of the disk I.O. The virtual file system is an abstraction layer that interfaces between the user and the file system in use. Its role is to give the same interface whatever the file system in use. So the file system is sort of within this layer too. More precisely, the VFS provides the abstraction layer separating the POSIX API from the details of how a particular file system implements that behavior. So, as you can see, those are blocks fitting into one another. Keep them in mind all along while we're going to dive into every one of them one by one. Let's talk about the hardware. The lowest minimal unit of storage on a medium is the sector. A sector is a block slash cell of bytes of a certain size. Some devices have physical hardware sectors like the HDD and SSD, but others have it abstracted by the software and have no physical delimiters. This makes the storage medium a grid of cells that can be used to store data. Those sectors are addressable, that means they can be pointed and found by reading and writing at, at their specific offset. This makes searching and writing information more efficient. A lot of the logic abstraction and file placement optimization done at the higher level are and were made with the assumption that we are interacting with a hard disk. So it's important to know the physical layout of a disk. A disk is composed of stacked platers that spin slash rotate while a head assembly reads from one side of a plater at a time. The plater has two faces. Each face is called the head. The plater in itself is divided into concentric circles that are called tracks or cylinders. The difference doesn't really matter here between cylinders and tracks, so we'll skip it. Those tracks are also divided into smaller parts that are all the same size and they are called sectors. This is the sector that we've talked about when we, when we said it's applied to the hard disk case to be the minimal storage unit. If you know the right head, the right track and the right sector, then you can pinpoint the data you want. However, most of today's hard disk have this abstracted and mapped sectors globally. So you can point directly to a general address without having to know about the rest. Which is also nifty because it can apply to other devices with sectors like SSD or optical disk, not only HDD. This is called LBA, Logical Block Address, which is in contrast with CHS, Cylinder Head Sector Addressing. LBA addressing can be translated back and forth to CHS. So when data is stored on the hard disk, it's usually stored on a bunch of sectors and whatever space is left on the sector is left as is. Though some file system may optimize that space as we'll see, but it's extremely rare, as they usually optimize blocks, which are completely different as we'll see. Because data is stored on sectors, and sectors are physical parts of a disk that can have physical space between them, it takes time for the head assembly, 
actuator piece to travel from one sector to another. The average time it takes is called the seek time. This time is quite big in computer time, from 5 to 10 milliseconds. It's very slow. As we've said, some optimizations done at the higher level do take this time in consideration and try to minimize it. Placement of files and caching comes to mind. SSD eliminates motor movement and rotation and so is faster and doesn't have the same issue as with as with HDD and other media. So I quote, which with SSD there are no moving parts, so a measurement of the seek time is only testing electronic circuits preparing a particular location on the memory and the storage device. Typically SSD will have a seek time between 0.08 and 0.16 milliseconds, which is way faster than 5 or 10 milliseconds. In sum, this is the layout of a hard disk and what it implies. It's also nice to know that most physical medium have a hardware way to check some, check the integrity and health of its own data. This is done through error correcting codes and bits. HDD, SSD and optical disk etc all have those. The comment that can show the physical sector size is the FDisk-L. Now we can move to the connectors, the interface with the physical medium. Let's focus on what those connectors are and what they do. When I say connector, I mean the low-level commands to interact with the disk or other devices, the hardware interface. There are three different components or ideas that are the most important here. The SCSI interface, the ATA interface and the BIOS interface. All of those are standards that could be implemented as ways of speaking with the data storage to make it do something useful and even configure it in some cases. The SCSI and ATA interfaces are to interact with the device directly. We call those direct access to controller. While the BIOS, by basic input-output system, access to controller can be used as a middleman to translate the communication with the actual device. Which, as you would guess, is a bit slower but more convenient than the direct access. On most Unix-like systems, the communication is done directly and doesn't use the BIOS which means SCSI and ATA are the main way of interacting with the storage devices and that there are specific drivers understanding how to do that. Let's note here that most direct access devices are equipped with read and write caches parameters. Remember that. So wait, we know what's a BIOS, but what the heck are SCSI and ATA? SCSI, SCSI or SEXI as the original author hoped it would be pronounced as, stands for Small Computer System Interface. It's a set of standards for physically connecting and transferring data between computers and peripheral devices. The standard defines a protocol and commands to interface and control those peripheral devices. Note here that we set peripheral devices, and so this standard is not limited to any specific data storage device or data storage in general. Though it's commonly used for hard disk drive and tape drives, it can be also used for CD drives and scanners or anything else. Simply said, it's just a bunch of standard ways of communicating so that different devices can communicate with each others. There are versions of the standards with different speed increases over time. Physically, the connector is the cable and the cable of the SCSI standards have a distinct set of pins to send the data over. What about ATA? ATA stands for AT Bus Attachment, or sent simply AT Attachment. 
The name originates from a standard first implemented in the IBM PC 80, where 80 stands for Advanced Technology. Now it's just kept as 80 attachment to avoid trademark issues with IBM. ATA has a long history of a series of iterative and incremental updates. It was first a response to SCSI flows. It has a different connector or cable type, it's cheaper, it's faster, and has more features in theory. One of the features is the LBA, which comes by default since V0 of the ATA. This LBA, logical block addressing, which we talked about earlier, is the physical address method that uses a single number instead of the cylinder head sector method. LBA became the new standard with backward compatibility to convert back and forth. IDE, one of those version iteration names, is sometimes mixed up with ATA. In fact, other names too get mixed up with it, like ATAPI, UA, UATA, IDE, etc., because in fact they are near synonyms. They are referring to the same thing. What's special about IDE Disk, Integrated Disk Electronics, is that they have a logic board built into it. Actually, ATA Disk requires a controller which is built into the disk of modern systems. The controller issues common to the ATA Disk over the ribbon cable, the channel. IDE is not just the connector and the interface. But it's the fact that you need a drive controller integrated into the drive as opposed to a separate controller on or connected to the motherboard, like with SCSI. The interface that an IDE uses is the ATA interface. This means that ATA is limited to hard disk usage, unlike SCSI, which has a controller and the motherboard so, you, so it can be used with everything. The ATA interface is the most popular disk interface these days. It's used everywhere. Because it's built into the disk, ATA offers custom commands like hard disk passwords, the manipulation of disk-specific parameters such as host-protected area, the max address, the device configuration overlay, etc. At some point, ATA and SCSI started to bottleneck. They were getting slow. Starting from the ATA 7 specification in 2003, something called Serial ATA, or SATA for short, was introduced. At the same time, the original ATA was renamed Parallel ATA, or PATA for short. The same happened with SCSI with the Serial Attached SCSI, or SAS for short. Both of those offered many advantages while still being compatible with their specific older interface. Reduced cable size, faster speed, reliability, amongst others. SATA is the de facto today for consumer devices such as desktop and laptop. 99% of the market share as reported in 2008. So both ATA-like and SCSI-like interfaces sound very similar. They both more or less do the same job, have direct memory access, feature common queuing, have swap swappable connectors to allow to hot plug the drives when the system is on, have self-monitor and analysis features such, such as smart, etc. Now the question is, can they work together? Are they compatible? The answer is yes. At first, when ATA appeared, they were cheaper, but SCSI were already on the market, so the compromise was to implement an ATA, the ATA PI, ATA Packet Interface, which would allow ATA devices to speak SCSI. Then ATA got more popular than SCSI, and so SCSI devices implemented the ATA Command Pass-Through feature, or Serial ATA Tunneling Protocol, which allowed ATA commands over SCSI bus. SAS even used the same connection as SATA, which allows a SATA drive to be connected on a SAS backplane controllers, but not the reverse. And then they finally put a standard in place for translation both way, 
This standard is called the SCSI ATA translation, SAT. So you can send ATA commands to SCSI devices such as CD-ROMs via the ATA PI interface or SAT. Actually, in practice, ATA PI is only used for devices other than hard disk. So okay, that was a long overview of the hard disk world. Now, how do we access those on Unix? Are there comments to configure, set the hardware, cache, etc. and get info about those drives? But a warning beforehand, you might crash your computer, lose data, or not easily be able to recover if you execute some of those comments improperly. So here are some comments, fdisk to manipulate disk and show information about them, hdparam, SCSI info, SCSI tools, cam control on FreeBSD, attack control also on, free, on FreeBSD, smart control to manipulate other ATA devices, features that have smart features, VPD decode, BIOS decode to get information about the BIOS, etc, etc. So those were the physical parts, and like most physical parts, they need drivers so that the operating system can map or mount them and interact with them. How is it done on Linux and the BSDs? The big difference lies in the stuff we've learned about just now, the SCSI and ATA. On Linux there are two drivers, a deprecated one, the traditional IDE driver, which is used for many common SATA chipset, and libATA, the newer ATA driver. You can also optionally load other than the driver for IDE. At the software level, support for BIOS interface we discussed earlier in case it provides some specific manufacturer software such as RAID, fake RAID, ATA RAID, DM RAID. What's particular about libATA is that it provides a SAT, the SCSI ATA translation implementation. It sits inside the kernel well-tested SCSI layer on Linux. Each SATA port on Linux will appear as a SCSI bus. Okay, so what does that mean? There's a mid-level, that is the SCSI layer common to a bunch of other lower operations that are translated to the other SCSI-like services. This layer, if built as a module, would never need to be loaded, as any lower module would depend on it and load it. So usually it's always loaded and not a module. Which means that those data storage devices all use the SCSI layer. Yes, and that means that if they want to use more specific configuration, they'll have to bypass it to interact directly with the device. More or less, yes. That also means that it affects the mapping of the SCSI and ATA devices under slash dev. Remember that a device is a gateway to a driver and the kernel that controls the device and not the actual device itself. So the SCSI and ATA disk are both mapped as slash dev slash SD something devices. SD standing for SCSI device. Slash dev slash sda for the first disk, slash dev slash sdb for the second disk, slash dev slash sdc for the third one, etc. And if we take a look under slash proc slash devices, we can find out that those are block devices. We'll explain what it means later, what the block device is, with a major number 8 and 65 through 71, etc. Slash dev slash hd is used for the IDE subsystem, slash dev slash sr for CD-ROM subsystem, etc. There are more precise things in the devfs subsystem, slash dev slash scusi, and you can get more details about the scusi by checking slash proc slash scusi. So that's enough for Linux. Now what about BSD? 
Every BSD has a different way of implementing the drivers and different names, but one thing in common is that there's a separation of drivers and mapping that means a clear separation between ATA and SCSI and not a SAT, the SCSI ATA translation implementation. We'll take FreeBSD as an example. The drivers that are interesting for us are the AD and DA driver, the ATA disk driver and the SCSI direct access driver. Apart from those, you have the AR driver for ATA RAID, the ACD driver for the ATPI for the CD, and just CD for SCSI CD-ROM, the AFD ATAPI for floppy, the ASD ATAPI for tape drive. You can clearly see here that the drivers don't have generic middle layer like Linux, but very separate ones. So all IDE slash SATA drives shows as slash dev slash AD something. And all the SCSI drives and USB mash storage show up as slash dev slash DA something. Another difference is that on FreeBSD block devices have been dropped. So all those devices are character devices. What are block devices, what's the block layer, and why would FreeBSD drop it? The idea behind all those is that if there are a lot of requests to the data device, then it might not be able to handle the throughput, and so a cube slash buffer slash cache layer may need to be inserted in the middle so that it is read before or written to before the real device. This is the block layer that is found in the kernel, and every block device has a buffer and a block layer. This is what a block device is. All block devices are viewed as a linear collection of blocks of the same size. Those blocks are the size of the cache entry, which is usually the size of a file system block, but that also depends, as we'll see later. But it's a different cache than the file system cache. This layer has some queuing and scheduling put in place too. However, there are a lot of criticism about it. 1. Some ATA devices already provide built-in hardware caching mechanism. 2. Like all caches, it's stored in the kernel and adds complexity to it. 3. It may be unreal unreliable as the kernel has to maintain efficiently the cache, sometimes re reordering the request and also has to do some frequent housekeeping of the data structure. And lastly, 4. In case of crash, the data might be lost and unrecoverable. For all those reasons, FreeBSD and other dropped support for cached slash block disk devices. The relevant comment here is block dev slash dash dash get block size with the device to find out the block size of a device. And I haven't found a way to flush the blocks directly on Linux because they are joined together with something called bash page cache, but you can flush the file system page cache using sync, but this is a, different than the block buffer maybe. Or you can just do sync or echo 3 into proxys vm drop cache to drop them. And yes, it's a bit confusing. So we mentioned the way devices are mapped in slash dev, however there's the appended digit and character we haven't discussed. So what are those? Let's talk about partitions and volumes. We mentioned partitions, so let's explain what those are, and with those we can also insert a layer related to RAID, volumes and encryption. As you'll see, those fit together in the same basket. 
A partition is a way to slice or shred up a disk into multiple sections with different roles. There are many reasons for that, for example the separation of data or having multiple operating systems on the same disk. It's practical because on Unix you can have separate partitions for different directories and those partitions don't have to be mounted on the same disk. But what's the difference between a partition and a volume? Those terms sound similar and you might have heard of them in the same context, however they shouldn't be mixed. A volume is a group of addressable sectors used for storage. Addressable in the sense that they can be pointed to. Okay, thanks. However, that means those sectors don't have to be consecutive nor on the same disk. The operating system will see them as one big block, a volume. A volume can be a single disk or many smaller disks into one. If it's many smaller disks into one, this is called disk spanning. A partition, on the other hand, is a collection of consecutive sectors and a volume. Now, the limitation is that they live inside a volume and that the sectors are consecutive. The partition can be virtual if inside one of those volume, or it can be physic physical if directly on the disk. A physical partition can contain a volume which can contain logical partitions. Usually there are only four main partitions on a disk, and a special partition called an extended partition should be used to have more than four. You can check the podcast about booting on Unix for more information about that subject. To sum it up, a volume is what the operating system considers as a bunch of addressable storage space. This can be many disks or a single disk. And the partition are the separate consecutive sectors that are part of those volumes or the physical disk. You can have three partitions and one volume and that volume spanning over two disks. Usually a volume is synonym with one disk, as setting up the other options is more tedious. Now how does the addressing works here? There are many layers, remember when we mentioned the CHS, cylinder head sectors, and then the LBA, logical block address. Now you have to add to those the layer on top for the volume, which is the logical disk volume address, which basically starts at zero for the start of the sector of the volume and ends with it. Remember that it doesn't have to be the start of the disk, but the start of the volume. Other than that, you have to add the same thing for the logical partition, a way to point to sectors inside of it. Thus, there is the logical volume partition address. So that's a lot of block stacking up. As we said, normally the volume is the physical disk itself, but to have the spanning over multiple disks or chunks of disk, you have to have a software implementation or a hardware one. The disk could consist of a specific volume management driver or of RAID. So let's discuss some of those software implementation. On Linux, for instance, to make those all work, it uses a layer called the Device Mapper, a framework provided by the kernel to map physical block devices into virtual block devices that can be used by those volume-like module. It's a transition module in the middle of the block layer and the volume handling layer. It can also be used for disk encryption, like dmcrypt. This device mapper behavior is also present in some BSDs, such as NetBSD and Dragonfly BSD. On Linux, there are two implementations of the volume management, LVM, logical volume management, and MD. LVM calls the volume a disk group or volume group. Disk and the volume group are divided into physical extents, equal size containers. A logical volume is made up of logical extent, and there is a mapping between each logical extents and the physical extents. 
Okay, that's a bit complex. What about RAID, the redundant area of an expensive disk? We consider it in the same category as volume handling as it manages multiple disks, sometimes as one, sometimes as replication, sometimes as error correcting. RAID 0 is like disk spanning for volumes. It spreads the data over multiple disks and chunk. RAID 1 is pure mirroring. RAID 2 adds some error correcting code. RAID 3 adds a disk that calculates the parity of the last bytes. RAID 4 is like RAID level 3 but using block size chunks. RAID 5 does the same as RAID 3 but alternating the parity checks from one disk to another. Okay. The mapping of devices in slash dev changes according to what we've discussed, apart from the SCSI and ATA we mentioned earlier. It adds volumes and partition to the mix. All Linux partitions are represented by additional numbers added to the end. For example, the first SCSI disk is slash dev slash sda, and the first partition on it is slash dev slash sda1. The second partition is slash dev slash sda2. That is, regardless if it's a partition on an extended partition like GPT or one of the main four partitions. On FreeBSD it's a bit similar, however the naming differs. The four main primary partitions are called slices, then has logical partitions inside the slices. The drive number is also, like on Linux, defined by adding a digit at the end of the device name instead of a letter. Slash dev slash ad0 is the first SATA draft, slash dev slash ad1 the second, etc. The slices, the four primary partitions, are defined by adding S1, S2, S3, S4 after the drive in question. So for instance, for the first slice of the first SATA disk, you would have slash dev slash ad0 S1. And for the second sli slice, slash dev slash ad0 S2. As for the partitions inside the slice, it's done by adding a letter slash dev slash ad0 S1A slash dev slash ad0 S1B. Usually on FreeBSD, those partitions are standardly mounted on specific directories such as A being slash, B being the swap, C overlaps all the other partitions on the disk, D covers the whole disk entirely. Anyway, what does mounting mean? On Unix, everything is represented under a root directory even the disk themselves, and so you need to have a sort of access point that says this directory points to this device. In simple terms, that's what a mount point is. For example, you mount slash dev slash sda3 on an x2 file system on the mount point slash gmp, and whenever you write data to slash gmp, it will be on slash dev slash sda3. There are many ways to mount a device. You can use fstab, you can manually mount the partition, you can dynamically mount it, etc. But I won't go into more details. Now, how does the operating system know where how to find the partitions? A partition is defined inside the parent volume disk partition table be it a DOS MBR partition or a GPT extended partition. You can check the podcast about booting for more details. Anyway, it's a fixed size structure that contains metadata about what's in there. It can say here is an LVM partition, here is some boot code, or here is an X4 file system. One of the entry in that structure does just that. It's a partition type, a byte specifying the partition ID, which is the type of file system or object present in this partition. For example, 0x83 is Linux, 0x85 is Linux extended, 0x8e is LVM, 0xa5 FreeBSD, 
0xA9, NetBSD, etc. There's a list in the show notes of the partition types. Other parts of the structure are the size of the partition, where it starts and where it ends. But what's actually inside the partition we are mounting? What is in there? Usually there's the file system. In the first few sectors of the partition, the file system stores its metadata. Its label, its paging area, the file system structure, the control block with ownership and data location, the free space mapping, a lot, a lot of specific file system components, which we'll go about in a bit. Here are a bunch of useful, useful comments that you can use. BLKID, LSBLK, FDISC, LSMOD to uh, load a module. So now, what exactly is a file system? What does it do and what's particular about it? How can we implement a file system and what are all those metadata for? As we said, the partitions are defined by their type. One of those type is the file system type. The partition, the isolated storage segment, is loaded and interpreted as a file system. A file system is the bulk of this episode. Without it, nothing makes sense. Without it, it would be data scattered around with no specific meaning attached to it. The file system is the way the operating system stores, updates, and retrieves the data. Uh, that sounds repetitive. We've already said that, it seems, but this time it stores the data in a hierarchy of files and directories. It's the file system that creates the structures around files and use data so that the operating system knows where to find them and what they represent. It's a structured data representation of a set of metadata describing the stored data. We gave the metaphor in the introduction of this podcast about the filing system that some banks used. Well, this is the job of the file system. It keeps track of what is what, their name, where they are, who has access to them, to them. it organizes them, keeps the office tidy, etc. And when you ask it where something is, then it has a procedure in place to be able to find it as fast as possible. To do all that, the file system needs an internal data structure and organization, the metadata and caching. It has two structures in place, one in memory and one on disk, a temporary and a permanent one. Let's talk generically and then discuss the differences between implementation of file system and the Unix world. First of all, the layer just under the file system is the block layer or whatever replaces it like the device mapper layer. Thus, the file system operates on blocks and not on sectors. Those blocks range from 1 to 128 sectors. 512 bytes to 64 kilobytes. The file system stores files on those blocks, usually at the start of the block and taking it entirely, even if the file doesn't fill it all, just like when we use sectors but not entirely. Anyway, there are some exceptions to this where the file system optimizes that wasted space, this is called block suballocation, and the wasted space phenomena is called internal fragmentation. The last few things I mentioned mean two things, that the file system should keep track of which block is used and unused, and to keep track of what is on which block. Both those information are stored in what we call the super block or volume descriptor. It contains all the important metadata required to use this file system, its type, size, status, and more importantly, information about where other metadata structures are, such as the free space mapping structure and the structure that represent the files used on which blocks. Without the super block, the file system is useless. It cannot be mounted, it cannot be used. Those are the permanent structures. 
The tracking of free space could be simply implemented as a bitmap or bit vector, every bit position representing the position of the block and the block data of the file system, or it could be a linked list or anything. This depends on the implementation. The second structure is the inode table, a table containing all the inodes. The inodes or vnode or other kind of similar implementation names is a structure that has a number, an ID, and other data that can help pinpointing the files on the disk and letting the operating system access that file. It contains things such as the file size, the device ID of the device containing the files, some permissions related metadata, some timestamp metadata, account of the number of hard links pointing to that file, and more importantly, pointers to the disk blocks that store the file's content, the inode pointer structure. There are usually two inode numbers that are recurrent on most Unix systems. The inode 1, which is used as a bad block inode, and inode 2, which is used as the root directory inode. For example, on Linux, slash sys and slash proc, which are not on disk, have the inode 1. One thing to note is that if the file system runs out of inode, then it is considered full, even though the disk might not be. A block in itself could be smaller than the file size. That means a file will own multiple blocks to store its content, right? And it's inode that it has a list of pointers to the disk box, as we mentioned. But when a file is created, how do we choose which, which blocks to give to a file? How do we do space management? Well, obviously this is file system dependent. Common ways to allocate the blocks are the first block found, or the last block found, or the best fit, or the worst fit, and you can mix those around. Usually the worst first fit is the best algorithm as it reduces the amount of external fragmentation. Fragmentation is when unused space or single files are not contiguous on the disk. The file blocks are scattered around. This happens when a program allocates blocks and then frees blocks in the middle and then the memory allocator uses this free block to store the data but the data doesn't fit in one block and thus it allocates another block further away. Another case when it happens is when a file grows in size and doesn't fit the space allocated already for it and it has to allocate a new block that isn't contiguous with it. With Unix file system fragmentation isn't that big of an issue but with other file systems it might uh, as the head actuator will be moving around the disk too much and slowing reading speed. On Unix disk reads are cached and even has the read ahead which buffers the next blocks intelligently. Moreover, the position of the disk head is irrelevant as Unix is a multitasking operating system and multiple users will already be reading all over the disk. Overall, disk fragmentation is a sign of bad implementation of block allocation. Okay, so that's how allocating blocks work, but how can it be stored inside the file system? All those related blocks together in the inode or whatever structure used to store the file information. It could be a contiguous pre-allocated array of blocks, it could be a linked list of pointers to the next blocks, etc. But on most Unix file system, it uses a combination of direct and indirect block pointers. For example, allocating in this fashion, allowing 12 direct block pointers and 3 indirect, indirect block pointers, single, double, triple. A direct block pointer is a pointer to a block that the file 
has that an, an indirect one is a pointer that points to another direct or indirect block pointers. The combination of those means that the file can, draw, can grow as it needs. What about the in-memory structure we mentioned? The kernel keeps a global file table. It keeps track of the bytes offset where the user's next to read write will start, the access write, etc. The in-memory structure can also have a file, a process file descriptor table, keeping track in every process of the file that are currently open. It also has a page cache, a copy or partial copy of file content, sometimes at the virtual file system level. In some cases, it unifies it with the buffer cache into a two-page cache, both the hard disk page size and the file system block size. The difference is that buffers, the block layer, are, are associated with a specific block device and its metadata, while the page cache contains parked file data. That is, the buffer remembers what's in directories, what file permissions are, and keep track of what memory is being written from or read to for a particular block device, the cache only contains the content of the file themselves. Buffer equal metadata, cache equal data. The page cache caches pages of files to optimize files I.O. The buffer caches disk blocks to optimize block I.O. This is quite confusing as the block layer caches writes to disk and the page cache caches pages of files and the buffer cache blocks and metadata about the file system. It has confused me too and I'm not sure I understand the differences really clear here. The memory structure can also have cache directories information which is very important, the D entry. And those in memory structure are sometimes referred to as the logical file system. We'll go back to it. What can differ from one file system to another? The block size, the caching algorithm, the block allocation slash space management algorithm, how it stores the metadata about files and what's in that metadata, the speed at which the data is fetched, if it has some specific features. For example, bigger block size will mean improved disk I.O. performance when using large files, but when using small files, it will result in a lot of wasted space if suballocation is not used. For example, as of 2015, according to Wikipedia, block suballocation is most widely used with BTRFS and FreeBSD UF2. UFS2. Another ex example, X2 space management algorithm tries to find 8 free data blocks before allocating and doesn't allow 2 files to allocate at the same time. An interesting allocation is the data block deduplication, which will consider identical block as the same block and not reallocate it. The hammer file system implements this. A file system can have some extra integrity mechanism if the power is cut before the data is written to disk, or if there is a media failure, there should be a way to recover. Some file systems offer some damage correction, fault to tolerance structures and features such as checksums, recovery, rollbacks and journaling. The X2 file system, for instance, has integrity check. X3 has journaling and RazorFS2. Journaling meaning that the file system maintains a journal or log of what is currently happening on the file system, thus can trace back events in the case of a crash. Some file systems have some limitation in size, what it allows and its file names, etc. Some file systems have a snapshot features allowing to backup and rollback. For example, ZFS, HammerFS, BTRFS implement these snapshot features. 
Some file systems allow pooling, sub-file system or sub-volume managed by the file system itself. It's yet another splitting, though it could be said that it's an implementation of a file system and a volume manager and the same software. ZFS and BTRFS also have those. They are file system optimized for specific devices and usages. For example, they are file system optimized for flash memory, solid state media, for CD-ROM optical disk, other for distributed system, other for network, other for encryption, etc. Some comments that can be interesting here are the MKFS and UFS to create some file systems and the file system check for checking a file system integrity and there's also the GNU parted that can be used to create file systems. It's common parlance that on 32-bit operating system, file system have a certain limitation for their file size. This is actually not a limitation from the file system, not from POSIX either, but rather indirectly from the ISO slash NCC. If you've listened to the podcast about bits and words, then you would guess what the issue is. The LSEQ file offset is defined as OFT. There's nothing in a 32-bit POSIX compliant system that... Uh, stops it from type defing it as a 64-bit sign long long. And same for a bunch of other functions like fset pause and fget pause. However, the problem lies in the ISO NCC fseq and ftel function which use a long for the offset instead of fpose t. This limits the size of a file to 2 gigabyte. Thus it is ISO NCC compatibility that is necessarily broken for file system that supports bigger than 2GB files with 32-bit longs. The original ideas about file systems haven't changed much since the, early, since the early days. The first Unix file system were referred to as FS. They had boot blocks, super blocks, a clump of inodes and the data blocks which we also have today, however today we have much more efficient structures. The ideas weren't all new as with everything Unix, it was inspired by Miltics and other operating systems that had those kinds of similar structures. What was new was the simplicity over functionality. This simple file system was improved later by the BSD guys to reduce the disk head actuator movements. It broke the disk into smaller chunks, groups, and each having its own inodes and data blocks, the cylinder clusters and bitmap free lists. Till today, most file systems have similar commonalities, such as dividing the disk into blocks, using inodes for files, using a di having a directory structure, uh, use the first block of each volume for bootstrap, use an inode table, have a super block like a volume descriptors, a block pointer scheme, etc. There's not much to say about the original history of a Unix file system, however, there's one part that is important for the next topic, having different types of file systems together. The virtual file system is an abstraction layer that interfaces between the user and the file system in use. Its role is to give the same interface whatever the file system in use, so the file system is within this layer. More precisely, the VFS provides the abstraction layer separating the POSIX API from the details of how a particular file system implements that behavior. This means Unix-like operating systems that have this kind of interface supports different type of file systems. Generically, those are layers that allow an operating system to access a file system via a common interface, a file system interface. This is called the common file model. There are many implementations such as Fuse, 
LUFS, VFS, which is the most used name for it on Unix Live system, even though they might not be the same on different implementation. So where does the concept of the VFS come from? The virtual file system mechanism on Unix-like system was introduced by Sun Microsystem and Sun OS 2.0 in 1985. Sun introduced a way to access the local UFS file system and the remote NFS transparently from the same usual system call. Other vendors that were implementing the NFS of Sun had to also implement this layer. Other file systems could also be plugged in this layer to add support for them. For instance, MS-DOS FAT was developed for Sun OS. Soon enough, this led to widespread implementation of the same mechanism that Sun OS implementation was the basis of the VFF mechanism in System 5 release 4 and later implementation in 4.4 BSD and derivatives. In 1993, the X2 file system was added to Linux instead of the Minix-like implementation to allow support for different kind of file system. But how does the VFS work? How does it know which file system is present? It all has to do with super blocks. It reads it, know what kind of file system it's dealing with, and maps it to its internal memory structures of VFS superblock. The real file system stays as a driver or built in the kernel. Thus, every mounted file system is represented by a VFS superblock, which contains the following and more. The device that contains that file system, that partition, etc. The file system type it is, and inode pointers, those point to the first inode in the file system and the inode of the directory it's currently mounted on, so both way. The block size of this file system, the super block operation, a translation table slash map or operational vector of routines used to interact with the file system. The VFS also has its own inodes, the VFS inode, which are built from information of the underlying file system inodes. The system processes accessing files and directory do it through this layer. If those inodes are accessed repeatedly, they are kept in the inode cache and the VFS for quick access so that it doesn't have to be fetched again. This is yet another layer of cache other than the built-in one and the disk and the block buffer layer. Now, you can say that here it's the VFS that inserts data in the block buffer layer or the whatever is under it, like the map device layer. The VFS also keeps a cache of directory lookups so that it, the inodes for frequently used directories can quickly be found, the de-entry cache. As the name implies, the VFS is virtual and so those structures and caches are kept in memory and not permanently. So this is the VFS from the side of the file system. What does it look like from the side of the user? In short, it provides the basic POSIX file I.O. functions. When a system call is issued, it passes through the common interface provided by the VFS. It is mapped via the VFS superblock and interpreted, buffered through the block layer, if any, and then goes down the pipeline we all mentioned before. There are many system calls supported by the VFS, such as mount, umount, chroot, mkd, or chown, stat, open, close, create, umass, select, pull, truncate, f truncate, anything that is POSIX IO. So let's discuss POSIX IO. User space programs interact with the file system API, the POSIX IO, whenever they write data, read from file, manage directories, mount devices, change metadata on files, etc. This is the logical layer on top of it all. The one that interacts with the user application directly. 
It manages the open file table entries and per-process file descriptors. It also provides security mechanism and protections such as access control list. For example, the open system call, the file descriptor table allocates the file descriptor, which points to an entry on the global file table, which contains all the I.O. bytes offset related information, where we are currently reading in the file. This global file table has a pointer that points to the proper inode number and the inode table, and then it goes down to the layer of the VFS to the file handling on the related file system. The POSIX I.O. is great but sometimes criticized for what it's good at, because it has to pass through so many checks of metadata on multiple layers and the page cache, it sometimes isn't the best alternative when real-time I.O. is in need. Although its strong point is consistency and portability. I've linked an article in the show notes titled What's so bad about POSIX I.O. It lists some reasons why for high performance I.O. it might not be that good. However, for higher speed it would break a lot of consistency. Okay, so if you want to know more about your data storage, you'll have to dig into the world of forensic. I've linked a book in the show note called File System Forensic Analysis. Uh, Analysis, it's a great resource. There are a bunch of open source tools that can be used to retrieve information from a disk. For example, the Sleuth Kit, which is a collection of tools for forensic analysis. Other useful tools such as Photorec can be used in case of data corruption to retrieve the files on a disk. But as with anything that messes with your data storage, be sure to do a backup before playing with them. So this is it. You should not have a big cross overview of the whole data storage architecture on Unix. What you have to remember is that at every layer there's an encapsulation and abstraction of the data passing through. It all represents abstracted access to data, from the disk to the driver to the block layer to the file system to the virtual file system to the POSIX file I.O. As usual, if you have something to add to the podcast or if you want to correct a mistake or something that's ambiguous, then comment on the forums and contribute to the discussion. It was Vinam for the Nixers podcast. Mm-hmm.